he's so evil looking with the you know the coming out of the darkness there and the gunshot and he's got the whip in his hand you're like is that the good guy or is that the bad guy there was a podcast called the sequel cast that talked about movies movies and they also talked about something else called movies movies it's the sequel cast Oh yeah, the sequel cast. It's the sequel cast. www.sequelcast.com. Hello, you are listening to the sequel cast. I'm your host, Uncle Milkshake. The sequel cast is a podcast where we uh, talk about movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. With me is Thrasher. Howdy, howdy. And special guest Mitch Halleck, uh, correspondent for the IndieCast a uh, bi-weekly podcast devoted to Indiana Jones. Mitch, Hello. welcome to the sequel cast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, not a problem. Uh, Thrasher, you were practicing a little ditty on the tenor saxophone? Yes, I thought it would be a great way to open the show with a little... And that's all I had time to practice. <laughs> oh, that's the uh, part most people recognize from the Raiders' march anyway. It's, and it's the thing is, the Raiders' march is such... It's a song, or it's a, it's, it's a piece of music that goes so many places, it really is a shame that people only remember the intro, but I guess that does just go to show how great an opening fanfare John Williams crafted. So, uh, before we get talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, I thought we'd focus on the indie cast uh, for a minute, Mitch. Now, I've been listening for a long time, and if I'm not mistaken, the indie cast used to be part of the Force cast, which is a Star Wars podcast. That is correct, Uncle Milkshake. It started when pre-production was happening for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull back late November 2007, and Ed Dollister stepped up to the reins, and there would be five-minute reports on the weekly forecast on what was going on with the next Indiana Jones movie at the time, and that's how the IndyCast was born, but there was so much news happening, and there were so many articles and interviews and new products coming out that... It just expanded, and my role on the show was I was the writer, and still am, for the Raider.net, because I had been writing articles about the movie when it was filming here in New Haven, Connecticut, where I live, and it spun off of that. So I started writing articles for the Raider, and then I would send those articles to Ed Dollister on the IndieCast, so he was reading the news items that I would write up for the Raider.net on the show, and then eventually... I came on, started doing segments. Then we had Pat, who came on and did indie trivia every week. And then we had Rob McGee, who comes on and does the indie opinion. And for quite some time, we had Ron, the reviewer, who talked about all things Indiana Jones as well. And we were very fortunate to have Laird Malamed, who was a sound editor on the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles and worked at Lucasfilm for quite a few years before he moved on to Activision. And he came on as a roving reporter and does segments on the Young Indie show and talks about music and sound. So it's really a great cast, and it has a lot of enthusiasm from fans as well. Yeah, when you look at the Indiana Jones franchise as a whole, it's really quite amazing how many uh, video games and, and novels and, and all these spin-off things, you know, based on a franchise that frankly focuses on um, characters that are of an older age that mm-hmm. might not have as wide an appeal as Star Wars, but still a pretty big appeal. I mean, obviously, these are very successful films. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Oh, go on. I was going to say, as an indie fan, I agree with you completely. In fact, I wish there was more of it, just as much as there is a Star Wars. I mean, you know, it would break the bank, but it would be fantastic to uh, have more books and more novels and more toys and, and, of course, more movies. But, you know, that's something we can only hope for at this time. But Indiana Jones, you know, be, being a, a, a real, you know, struck from the mold of the real classic pulp characters, I always felt that, that it would transfer really well in, into comic books, but there, there are, uh, I, I've come across very few uh, Indiana Jones comic books, and I think all the ones I've seen are the ones that have been based on the movies. Uh, Dark Horse recently came out with, I think, maybe five or six sort of collections of um, Indiana Jones comic books. And in fact, there's even an Indiana Jones comic book based off the uh, Fate of Atlantis game, although that mm. one's not very good in particular. But um, That's correct, guys. There was actually a line of Indiana Jones comics produced by Marvel Comics back before Temple of Doom came out in the early 80s, and that ran for 37 issues. That's probably the longest run Indy ever had. But the problem with that book is 
they didn't have much source material to go on except for the film Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the stories were only broken down into one or two issue stories. So you didn't have these epic, you know, seven issue, you know, journeys for a MacGuffin or anything like that. They were done really down and dirty, quick adventures, and the artists and the writers struggled with what they had. Imagine trying to make, uh, you know, three years worth of comic books based on one movie and a limited amount of characters, and you didn't know where the, the story was going after that. But unfortunately, Marvel dropped the uh, book as they moved on to Temple of Doom and then, of course, The Last Crusade. And you're right, uh, the license switched over to Dark Horse, who did improve upon it, and they made great miniseries there with great artists and great writers over the years, and they've kept Indy alive in the uh, comic strips as well. Uh, now, when I think about Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first time I saw that movie, I was in, um, like, second or third grade. My family had rented it on a videotape from the embassy. I was living in Buenos Aires, Argentina at the time. And I, I was so enthralled with this movie that afterwards we went to Pizza Hut for dinner, and I picked up the menu, and I drew on the back of the menu a drawing of uh, Indiana Jones with a hat, a stick figure, <laughs> going to get, nice. like, a, you know, a treasure or something, going over spikes. And I thought, well, I have to send, uh, mail this idea to Steven Spielberg. But <laughs> my, my parents convinced me... Uh, you shouldn't, you know, if you're going to mail something to someone, don't make it something scribbled on the back of a greasy pizza menu. So I never did. Well, man, though, if you had done that, though, you really, th those those three kids who wrote for Tiny Toons, you could have beaten them to the punch. <laughs> well, uh, you, should, you shouldn't laugh about things like that. I talked to J.W. Rinsler, the fellow who writes all those making of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back books, and in the Lucas archives, the actual origins of Darth Vader's name is on a yellow legal pad, and it's about three or four scribblings from Mr. Lucas, and eventually he comes upon the name of Darth Vader. So, you know, don't throw away those cocktail napkins or menus, because you oh, never yeah. know, they might be the next blockbuster. I've got five of those things. So, uh, Thrasher, when was the first time you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, the first, the first time I saw the, the whole film... Uh, actually, it, oddly enough, it, it was at school. It was, it, was part of, it was part of a project. We... We we watched we we watched the movie, but then would like you know we're, we're, would put it into its historical context with you know the build up to World War Two. Uh, so I remember I remember watching it, and I remember it was my friend Steve who who came up with it, and I don't know if I want to say conned, but got the teacher to think that that was a good idea, and we watched it off of and we watched it off of a tape that he had taped off of HBO. And, like, right at the end of the movie, when the credits would start, it cut to the introduction to an Eddie Murphy episode of SNL that he had also t put on the same tape. So, like, like you know, they the, the, the film's all done, the, the credits are about to roll, directed by Steven Spielberg, and then suddenly it's Eddie Murphy as Prince singing a parody of We Are the World. Mitch, when was the first time you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, I'm a little bit older, and I can tell you now, I actually saw it at a sneak preview back in 1981... Uh, a few weeks before it actually opened, it opened on June 12, 1981, and I was in high school. I was a freshman, and it was playing, believe it or not, with a double feature. You got to see two movies when they had sneak previews back then, so you'd pay for your ticket, and you could see the new movie and then stick around for the one that was currently showing. And believe it or not, on a Friday night, they put Raiders of the Lost Ark along with a Richard Pryor movie called Bustin' Loose which was rated R. Huh. I was only about 12, and I, no, 12 or 13, and I couldn't go to a rated R movie. So it was a Friday night, and I remember my sisters were older than me. They were all moved on to college and grown up, and I begged my 60-something-year-old Italian grandmother to take me to the movie. <laughs> and uh, she did, and like I said, it was a Richard Pryor movie, so it was quite a strange crowd in the New Haven area to see that Raiders Lost Ark. And no one knew what the movie was about. I remember talking about it in study hall before I went that night, and all the kids were like, well, who made it? And at the time, the commercials just said, the new hero from the creators of Star Wars and Jaws. That's how they marketed it. And I remember this one fellow looked at me and said, is it about a giant space whale that blows up or something like that at the end of the movie? Or <laughs> was it the Noah's Ark? Because we were in Catholic school, so we were like, what, they found Noah's Ark? What's the deal here? So no one knew what it was about. And they kept saying it was like cliffhangers and serials, and all I thought of was like these old cheesy uh, Flash Gordon Buster Crab serials that would be on the uh, local PBS TV on the weekends. I was like, oh, this is going to be something to see. But we went to that show, and it wasn't sold out, but it was a full house. And all I know is my grandmother was deathly afraid of snakes in the real world. So <laughs> when she saw Reggie come on, the snake that's in the um, pilot's... Uh, 
plane in the beginning of the movie, she jumped and yelled, you know. But when they landed in the well of the souls and there was like 10,000 snakes, my grandmother got up and ran out of the theater and <laughs> left. And now here I am torn because I'm 12. I don't know how I'm going to get home, but I want to see how it ends. So I'm like, do I go to the lobby and see if she's okay or do I just sit here and watch the movie? <laughs> I sat there and I watched the rest of the movie and eventually she showed up again uh, during the uh, fight with the uh, flying wing and the German mechanic. She showed up about 25 minutes later or so and... Uh, watched the rest of the movie, and then just went home and told my mother about how horrible the picture was, and they had snakes in it, and what kind of movie was this, and all I asked was if I could go see it again when it opened up for its regular engagement. Yeah, you know, when I think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, one thing I'm reminded of is um, I used to live in Atlanta, Georgia. For several years, I'd go to this convention, Dragon Con, that's down there. Yep. It's a big yep. convention in the South, and um, I got, in a 2001, I believe, I got to see John Rice Davies the actor that plays Sala, uh, speak. Right. And he talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And he said it seemed to him that Steven Spielberg enjoyed making Raiders of the Lost Ark more because it was such a low budget. So yeah. much of the movie was made off the cuff. And in, in fact, he was saying that many scenes in the film are flub takes, that it takes that are messed up somehow. And by the time he had done Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it was as if he'd storyboarded the entire movie in his head and just was sort of uh, doing it to, uh, to get the job done. Well, yeah, you have to remember at that time, Steven Spielberg was coming off of probably one of the most expensive bombs in Hollywood history, which would be 1941, and that came out in 1980. And, you know, his reputation is he had Jaws, he had Close Encounters, and now he has this big bomb with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, how is he going to recover from it? And here comes George Lucas, and they had already been talking about Indiana Jones for a couple of years when Star Wars opened back in the 70s, about eventually making their own type of James Bond character, because Spielberg always wanted to direct a James Bond film, but the Cubby Broccoli's family wouldn't hire him. So George said, don't worry about that, I've got the great story of a guy named Indiana Smith. And that's where the story took place, and they came on to it, and they developed it, and they brought some writers in, like Larry Kasdan, and they went further, and Philip Kaufman threw in the idea of the Ark of the Covenant, and eventually Raiders was born. So Spielberg, like you said, that John Reese davis was talking about, he almost had something to prove, that he could still manage a movie, because he had gone so over budget, so over production uh, time with 1941, and it bombed, he was out to prove it. And they came in with Raiders, it was only done for about $20 million, it came in in 72 days, it had a 90-day filming window, so he came in 18 days uh, under schedule. So he was really going fast and furious to show that he still had it and wasn't going to become like a, a has-been in Hollywood. So Spielberg was out to prove something, and maybe that's what the cause of uh, his fast and furious filming direction was for that film. And by the time he came around for The Last Crusade, it was years later, he's already at this point had E.T., which was the biggest movie of all time back then. And then he had Empire of the Sun. He had a bunch of other films from that time. He had done Raiders, and then, of course, they did The Temple of Doom. And it was five years between Temple of Doom and Last Crusade, so Spielberg had his chops all set for that one. I'm trying to think where to begin with this movie, just because there's so many iconic scenes. I mean, Raiders well, of the Lost Ark is a movie where, even if you haven't seen the movie, you'd probably recognize some of the scenes in it, just because how much it's referenced. Well, I would say let, let's start uh, start at the beginning, and the beginning of of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's almost like you're seeing the tail end of a whole other movie, right? It's, mm. you, we're introduced to Indiana Jones at the tail end of a globe trotting quest that we never got mm. to see. That implies so much story and so much about the character. Right, that's like those James Bond uh, intros just before the opening credits. You'd always walk into a previous adventure of James Bond that was just coming to an end. So you came right out of the gate like a roller coaster, you know, that big push that they send you up to do the loop on the, the oh, Hulk yeah. ride down to Universal. That's what it was. It was like, holy jeez, did I just walk into a movie that already started? And with that crack of the whip, and then next thing you know, they're inside the temple there, and we've got spikes, we've got spiders, we've got the whole shebang. And then it ends, and just when you're going to take a breath, because he's in the airplane and he's taken off into the sunset, there's a snake in his lap. And I can recall quite vividly, the, the audience groaned almost when he took the swing on the vine into the water, you know, because we didn't know what this was. No one knew who Indiana Jones was. Some people said he kind of looked like the guy from Star Wars. I mean, this was still brand new to everybody. Like you guys said, it, it was like a roller coaster ride. And once he takes off on that plane, you're just about to catch your breath, and all of a sudden there's a snake. And I remember everybody in the theater jumped a mile. 
and then you hear have a little backbone and then they sail off to uh, the university there and everyone finally catches their breath and calm down but until that point I don't think any movie other than like I said James Bond had introduced their main hero and the main villain actually in such a way within the first 15 minutes of the movie you were like boom here it is whether you're ready or not you're on the ride and get ready and buckle your seat because the next two hours is going to be ours and it's nice in a, in this film in particular how the beginning ties into the rest of the movie. That's not necessarily the case where in this, you know, you have Belloc and he's a character later in the film. And that's not necessarily the case with some of the uh, other Indiana Jones movies. But uh, even the beginning, um, you know, he's... Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, is filmed where you can't even see his face for the first few minutes. There's almost no dialogue. And then he steps out of the shadows revealing himself mm-hmm. to um, Alfred Molina who right. plays uh, Satipo. Like, I didn't even realize that was Alfred Molina until I watched the uh, documentary on uh, one of the DVDs where they have him talking about it now. Yeah, that's his first movie role. And uh, yeah, listeners but... now might know him, probably best known, I guess, for uh, Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man 2. But right. he's been in several, several films. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When that movie started, i got to tell you guys, you don't know if that was the hero or the bad guy. I mean, he's so evil looking with the you know the coming out of the darkness there and the gunshot and he's got the whip in his hand you're like is that the good guy or is that the bad guy i mean you still don't know at this point watching it and it is a great introduction to a character in a movie whether he is the hero or the villain how he just steps out of the shadows and that music plays and the gunshot's still echoing because again i saw it in the movie theater and when that gunshot went off when he whips it out of his hand i mean the whole place and the surround sound of the day and the stereo it you jumped you know it was that loud like thunder so, again, like James Bond films, not only does it have a short little adventure in the beginning where you're kind of thrown in the middle of it, you also have a what's frankly a mission briefing sequence where Indiana Jones goes and he's explained about the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. And I, one thing I noticed uh, this time around watching the film, I haven't seen the whole movie in uh, a few years, I think. At the beginning, you have uh, the character of Indiana Jones is teaching a class. And then later, he is teaching the uh, representatives from, I think, the CIA. Uh, the U- U.S. Army Intelligence. Or, okay, U.S. Army Intelligence. Right. The CIA wasn't around then. Uh, That's right. He's teaching the U.S. Army Intelligence. So you're getting, like, two lessons, one after the other. Right. And he almost has to explain more to the U.S. Army Intelligence people than to the students. Well, here you go, that whole oxymoron, army intelligence or military intelligence, that type of thing. So they were just playing with the idea that most folks in uh, the world already know of. Thrasher, you have any thoughts? Well, something something that, that I, and I'm, I know we will touch on this later, but I I love the fact that for, that for this movie, the, the MacGuffin, is a relic of Judeo-Christian mythology. I I love I love the fact that they didn't you know they don't go with something about Atlantis or some weird creepy idol. They they go they go with a holy relic which contains the the power of an, of the Old Testament God. I think that is that is so so cool. And I, I can't imagine a, a movie going that way without diverting into a weird religious thriller area. Right, and you also have to remember at the time the character of Indiana Jones, he throws it out there and he even says, I'm you know, not a, suspe- a superstitious fella, I don't believe in a lot of hocus-pocus nonsense. He's going after the Ark, not so much for the power, but for his own personal gain. I mean, this is going to give him all the glory in, in Temple of Doom, he'll talk about fortune and glory, but he tells Marcus Brody, this is everything they got into archaeology for in the first place, to quote the movie. So to him, this is his ticket. I mean, this is going to be, he's going to be on the cover of every magazine, because like I said, the character is a very roguish character. You don't know if he's a 100% good guy wearing a white hat, because he certainly doesn't seem like that. He's a little sketchy at times, and later on in the film, Belloc even refers to him as a shadowy reflection of himself, because you got to remember, when you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones is not squeaky clean. I mean, he's going to have a lot of character flaws in it besides being afraid of snakes. You're going to see the whole relationship with him and Marion Ravenwood, and we'll talk about that later. But when the army comes to him, I mean, he's in it for the money. He's very Han Solo-like, uh, but he's also going to do it for the museum. You know, he wants to make sure that they get their glory and they get to keep the Ark when they're done with it. And, uh, you know, it's a very interesting thing to watch. Nowhere in the beginning of the movie does he talk about obtaining the Ark of the Covenant 
for its otherworldly powers. He's not into it for that. He's just into the, the discovery of it, you know, to, to actually find the Ark. Well, I mean, he, he would be making the, the discovery of the century, if right. not the millennium, and he'd be getting all, all the praise that goes with that. Right, so his motivations are very interesting to watch when you, you go back and you look at the film. It's not like, like James Bond gets his mission because that's what he does. He's a soldier, and gets him in his office and says, here's Blofeld, or here's whoever, and we have to go after him because that's your job. Indy's after it for, like you just said, for his own name to be in there because he's going to find the discovery of the millennium, you know? Well, you talk about him being a little bit edgy in this film, too. I mean, one thing that sort of stood out to me is that the blood in this movie, now it's not oh, yeah. it's not like gore like you're watching Saw 3D or something no. like that, but <laughs> there's a scene in the uh, that big uh, bar fight where a guy set on fire, Indiana yeah. Jones shoots him in the forehead, and he yeah. falls forward. Yeah. Or, and, of course, the, the screaming, melting faces at the end. And um, at the time, that would have been, I think, pretty violent, I guess. I don't know. Oh, I mean, yeah. Even like rated R movies then, when someone got shot, there wasn't a lot of blood. No, in fact, there was no PG-13. In fact, Temple of Doom would create that rating a couple years later when they had it, and folks were up in arms with the whole heart-ripping scene and the kids getting whipped and the slave tunnels and all that stuff. So PG-13 came about because of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But for Raiders of the Lost Ark at the time being PG, PG movies back then are totally different than PG movies nowadays. Because ju- that PG actually meant something back then. It meant oh, hey, yeah. Hey, hey, it's- there's some stuff in this film that might be too intense for your kids. Think about it, won't you? And now right. it's this watered-down nothing rating. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember seeing that movie, and it was quite quite gory for its time because, like you said, the headshot that's there, and, of course, the finale, we'll get to that, but you also have to remember the airplane fight where the fellow's chopped up by the propeller blades, oh. and he's dragging folks under you know, the truck. He's throwing people. He's running a guy over, and you see the arms kick up in the air when he does it. There's a lot of stuff in there that nowadays you'd raise an eyebrow if you were going to let your kids see it, and you'd be like, wow, this is a pretty violent movie. And like I said, Indy is, he's taking no guff, man. He's out there shooting people, and he's beating them up, and he's doing whatever he has to do to get the job done, that's for certain. Well, you know, I think it's it's kind of, it goes it goes back to, at least the violence goes back to the, to the, the pulp hero legacy. The pulps, the pulps weren't afraid to have a little bit more violence and a little bit more sex. And, right. you know, a two, uh, and, you know, you, yes, you, you did have squeaky clean, two-fisted pulp heroes, but you'd also have pulp heroes that could just get so brutal and, and that, would, that would thrill the audience with the violence as much as the action. Yeah, absolutely, because like you said, you have your squeaky clean Flash Gordon, Roy Rogers, you know, white suit, white hat, nothing happens to them, and they always get the girl, and they always say, darn it, or something like that. But yeah, Indy was definitely more of a a Doc Savage type of character, or even a Shadow, because if you ever read the old Shadows, he's definitely, even the old Batmans from the times in the 40s and 50s, these are kind of ruthless people. I mean, the Shadow would hypnotize somebody with his ring and make them walk off a building and kill themselves. Oh, yeah. That's the way, you know, evil is, uh, what is it, the root of all evil? And oh, the, the, weed, the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. There you go, and the shadow is there to make you pay, you know? So Indiana Jones is definitely cut from that type of mold uh, rather than a squeaky clean uh, serial hero. And I think one thing of Indiana Jones that makes him so endearing, as you mentioned, is that he doesn't always win all the time. He might be trying to sneak into a place and he gets caught. Yeah. He'll get punched several times during a big fight. You can see yeah, that's how we're introduced to him in many in having victories stolen from him at the last possible moment. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if you look at all the Indiana Jones movies as a whole, he never, ever, ever gets the prize that he's looking for. <laughs> it's really bizarre. Everyone thinks of it at the end. They go, oh, yeah, he got the Ark, he got the Holy Grail, he got the Shankar. So he never keeps them for long because he always loses them or he gives them away or something like that. So there is a weird sense, of, and this is why he's a good guy. Because, yeah, he has that ruthless edge, he has that, will do whatever he has to do to get the job done, but he's also, somewhere inside of him, got that marshmallow filling, if you will, like a Han Solo character, <laughs> where he might say he's doing it for the money, but at the end of the day, he does it for the right reasons. You know, he turns it around and does it for his country, or he does it to save the village, or he lets it go because he realizes his father's love is more important than whatever the quest is, and it goes on to all the movies. So that's what really separates him from 
I say uh, the character of Rick O'Connell from the Mummy series or oh, yeah. even the Alan Quatermain movies. A lot of folks have tried to imitate the Raider success over the years, The Rocketeer, there were some TV shows, The Tales of the Golden Monkey. A lot of folks try to replicate it, they try to, you know, imitate it, but they always seem to miss what makes that character so successful, and I think that's what it is, and Harrison Ford personifies it probably better than any other actor that could have pulled it off. I know Tom Selleck was always meant for the role, but because of his contract, had to do Magnum, but I can never picture Tom Selleck having the same vulnerability as an Indiana Jones or the same everyday man determination as a Harrison Ford pulls it off. And that's what really brings that character to life as well. It's also the portrayal that Ford gives it that other folks can't compare to. I mean, he really owns that character and he makes you care for him with his looks and his grimaces and his funny faces and his stuff. I mean, that role was created for him and he owns it and I think a lot of the credit for the success of these films has got to be Harrison Ford well, you, you really touch on something because Indy I, I don't like a lot of action movies and a lot of it is because I don't like the main character and the, the wonderful thing about Indy is that he's not just another smirking, wise-cracking action movie character he has the full range of human emotions yeah, absolutely. You know, that came up tonight. It's funny you say that. I was just posting stuff on the Raider.net tonight because Ryan Reynolds has just come out and he's talking about the forthcoming Green Lantern picture and he says his character or his portrayal of the Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, is very much in the mold of that Han Solo, Indiana Jones, smirky, wisecracking hero. And I went right back at that and I posted it up there and fans have already reacted to that. If that's what you think... Indiana Jones and Han Solo is, then you're missing the point, and you're trying to sell yourself. He's basically trying to say his Green Lantern's like these classic Harrison Ford heroes. Mm. If you watch those movies, that's the same trap I just mentioned that the others fall in. They think, oh, if I do a wink at the camera, or I throw in a little uh, joke after I just shoot the guy like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was famous for in his films, that's not Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones doesn't crack the wise as he just stabs you with a, you know, a a great example, he throws the uh, shish kebab through one of the uh, the Chinese mafia there in the Temple of Doom. He doesn't say, I think you got the point, and winks at the <laughs> camera like James Bond would or Roger Moore. He's there because he's trying to get out of there. He's, he's fighting for his life. And, and that's what the, the intensity and the realism that you get when in the Indiana Jones movie that the audience identifies with. They're like, hey, man, get the hell out of there. You know, just run. Don't, don't smile and wink at the camera. Make sure your hair's perfect. Go, Indy, go. Yeah, I think and, it's, it's that realism with the character is, is really what allows these films to go off in those pulp, pulp, over-the-top pulp moments. The yeah. characters are so real that the, that is where the fantasy happens. You know? Yeah, and, and like you said, at the time, 1981, there was nothing to compare Raiders of the Lost Ark to. I mean, when that movie came out, it just blew everybody's mind because... We've never seen a hero like Indiana Jones. Like There is James Bond and there's other, there's other Pulp Fiction characters, but on screen at 1981, we had Flash Gordon that just came out uh, with Sam Jones. I mean, it's like a disco opera. That came out that Christmas. I remember seeing that, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's a Pulp serial movie, Flash Gordon. And then here you go six months later in June, Indiana Jones comes out. You're like, no, that's... A pulp hero. That's a ser- that's the guy I want to go see again. I don't want to talk about that. Whatever that was, I just <laughs> saw with disco music and all that craziness. I mean, you talk about characters grounded in reality, and there's aside from Indiana Jones, there's no other character in Raiders of the Lost Ark I can think that personifies that more than uh, Marion Ravenwood. Yeah, and it helps keep the film grounded. I mean, also that she looks like a normal woman. She looks like a girl right. next door. She doesn't look like a knockout. And it's really not until Last Crusade, until you get um, a, a female interest in the movie that looks like a model or something. Yeah. But she just looks very uh, down-to-earth. She plays it really tough, and it's uh, tough to believe that Karen Allen, you know, is also an animal house. Yeah, I remember recognizing her as well. There was a TV miniseries at the time called East of Eden, based on a John Steinbeck book, and she played this sweet, diminutive uh, girl-next-door character in the movie called Abra. And you know, like you said, she's the girlfriend in Animal House, and then there she is on a miniseries, and that's the only reference I had to her when the movie came out. You fell in love with her. Forget Princess Leia and Carrie Fisher. No, Marion Ravenwood was, you know, my heart throb. I looked and I said, wow, I wish she lived next door to me because she was cool, man. She could punch and 
drink like the guys, and then you can go and see her in that nice evening gown and go, hey, wait a second here. She's pretty cute. So, well, yeah. If I can quote some, if I can quote from Cleopatra Jones, she a whole lot of woman. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, Mary Ravenwood, can you imagine a more perfect name for a pulp heroine? No, no, not uh, not at all, because like you said, it's got that romantic sound with that Ravenwood name and then marrying, you know, a girl's name, and you put her together and she's a two-fisted, double-drinking badass, you know? Sure, and um, you can't talk about Indiana Jones, you know, without talking about the villains as well. You have uh, Belloc in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I would say he's sort of a more subtle villain, and then you have sort of a more cartoonish, over-the-top portrayal with the Nazi uh, Major Tot. Yep. And um, just looking at Tot, his scrunched-up face, his jacket, uh, his hat, even yeah. the glasses... You just don't like him the moment you see him. He doesn't have to have dialogue, and in fact, he doesn't have much dialogue throughout the whole film. No, and he's so badass that he could actually wear a thick black leather jacket in the middle of a desert. Okay, <laughs> I mean, this guy was tough. But you're absolutely right. How ironic is it that the, good, that the guy wearing the white suit and the white hat is the bad guy? I mean, mm-hmm. Renee Belloc wears the white clothes in this movie, and he's wearing the worker guy outfit, all dirty and dusty. And, and don't forget Colonel Dietrich there. He's also uh, your Nazi uh, sure. perfect soldier there, if you will. But, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great cast of characters there. You have almost every type. You have the champagne villain, as they used to call Belloc. <laughs> and then you, you have the Peter Lorre henchman, just slimy little snake, you know? That's something else that, that this movie does so much better than so many others. Like So, so many movies, comic books games sort of go the easy way. Oh, the, vi- the villains are Nazis. Everybody hates Nazis, right. and then don't give us any reason to hate the, the Nazi characters other than what we remember from history. And the thing I love about these Nazi villains is that you could take away the Nazi, and they would still be these horrible oh, villains. Mm. They are such just sickening, ruthless, yeah. creepy people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like Nazi is like the third thing I could say about them. That's how bad they are. <laughs> yeah, 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 that would be like a compliment. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're absolutely right, hitting the nail on the head. You need a bad, or you need a great bad guy, because if you don't have that, all the heroics that, that we see uh, Indiana Jones go through are for not, because you, you want to see, is he going to win? And it's it's so funny to see because I mean Indiana Jones people think he takes on the entire Third Reich. He's only fighting about what thirty or forty Nazis in that desert. Yeah. But you are involved. You're mm-hmm. engaged with him. You want to follow his quest when he leaps on the horse later on in the movie. I mean, you can't keep your eyes off it. And I'll remember to this day when the, later on in the film, the audiences used to cheer a lot. And I say that a lot in the indie cast. And a lot of times I talk on the Raider and the articles. I remember. Folks, I know it's not a live theater. I mean, I know the actors on the screen aren't going to hear you. But people would clap. People would get up. And these are the days when, when Luke blew up the Death Star, everybody in the theater jumped up and was applauding. When Rocky Balboa went the distance with Apollo Creed, people would break out in applause. I, I don't know. We just did that. And there's so many of those applause moments in Raiders and those all-out uh, laughter and, and clapping the hands that when he would do stuff against the bad guys you would just feel the excitement in the air because everybody was, like, cheering for the underdog and, like, and he leaps upon the horse to go after the Ark and the truck chase. The entire theater, you know, like when the wave... This is before the wave started in in, uh, sporting events. The wave starts in 1981 with Indiana Jones as he rides that horse through the tent and down the road. You'll see all the Arabs around there all start to stand up and cheer <laughs> as, as he goes. So Indiana Jones created the wave. Next time you're at a sporting event and you see it, you'll know that Indy made it. And, <laughs> nice. I mean, everybody, in, we were engaged. We were part of the excitement. We wanted him to go beat those bad guys up, like you said, because they deserved it, man. You talk about, we talked about the casting a little bit, and I think it's pretty ironic. You look at the character of Sala, and in the film yeah. he's played by John Rice davies but originally the plan was for him to be played by Danny DeVito. That's correct, yeah. And then, ironically, you have the series of two Michael Douglas pictures, um, Romance, Romance of the Stone, Stone and Jewel of the Nile, in which Danny DeVito plays a very similar sort of sidekick uh, part. Yeah. And I, as good as Danny DeVito is in other things, I don't think he would have worked as Sala. Something about John Rice davies you look at him, and you can't tell if he's a good guy or a bad guy either, 
No, because no, no, he's yeah. big, he's intimidating, he has a deep voice. He'll uh, break out into Gilbert and Sullivan for no good. Oh, I love that part. <laughs> he's got just the, uh, he's I mean, got just the right level of 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 bombast and uh, gravitas. Absolutely. I mean, he is again a great sidekick for Indiana Jones because. Uh, you you don't know what to expect. Like you said, you don't know if he's a bad guy. You don't know. He might double-cross Indy for all you know. And you got to remember, too, Raiders of the Lost Ark, nowadays people think of Indiana Jones as nonstop action. And when that movie came out, it was like a roller coaster ride. Ironically, I'll watch it nowadays with my kids. And last year there was a show in it to drive in, and we all went to see it. And if you watch the pacing of that movie compared to something nowadays, it's very telling. Nowadays, Raiders would seem slow. You know, with the exposition, and then there's the fight scene, and then there's the travel, and then there's another exposition, and then there's a fight scene. And it, it seems slow compared to today's, you know, flashy CGI 90-minute uh, adventure films that people are used to. But that's what the beauty of Raiders of the Lost Ark is, that you can get a character like Sala. You can give him a couple moments to develop. You learn about Salah. He's got a wife and about nine or ten kids, and he's the best digger in Cairo, and he likes to sing Gilbert and Sullivan, and he's got a sense of humor about him. I mean, you don't see that type of well-written sidekicks nowadays. You know, it's all about the hero, and then one of the cheapest tricks that Hollywood does nowadays with sidekicks when they introduce them, they'll be like, well, I'm John Hero, and this is my buddy sidekick Sam. We fought together back in Iraq, or and they'll give you the history of the characters in a couple lines of dialogue, and that's it. And you know that's all you're going to get for exposition. But in Raiders, you got well-rounded characters, like you said, the Nazis, whether they're Nazis or not, just the bad guys. They're just so well written and so well performed. You 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 recognize everybody in that movie. There's only what five or six characters throughout the whole picture, but everybody is clearly defined and. You're just brought into that story without blinking for two hours, and again, it's a magical film. Well, something else about well, you know actually, the pacing of it, it that it might seem slow because of exposition uh, by modern right. standards, but it's also because of the way editing is done now, and um, especially well, editing on the computer. If you're cutting a movie together and you're looking on a small screen instead of a f- projected on a film or projected on a you know theater screen. You'll right. get bored and you'll want to make more cuts. I mean, a movie now might have an average of, I don't know, like 12 cuts per minute. And you have a lot of very, not stationary, but you have a lot of lawn shots, a lot of you know, wonderful shots where it's just you look at the scenery, you look at uh, Indiana Jones and Sala at twilight digging yeah. uh, for the Well of Souls. And I, I don't think you would get that in a, a modern picture, or at least not a <laughs> mainstream not action at all. movie. Not a, not a, a Zack Snyder picture, certainly. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I yeah. mean, you know, even the Mummy movies, I mentioned those earlier there. Yeah. If you watch The Mummy 3, it's like a cartoon. I, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't say that. That's almost degrading a cartoon. A Warner Brothers cartoon has more depth than those films <laughs> did, you know? I mean, you'll actually see Bugs Bunny look at Pismo Beach before he fights with Daffy Duck, as opposed to, okay, that's it, we're here in the Himalayas, let's move on. But like you said, Indy flies over the mountains. You see the map which is fantastic, you know, the little red dot and the line going across the country as we see where Indiana Jones is going. And, you know, again, these are all little elements that have been around for movies for years, but they put them all together into Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you you just sat back and you were enthralled by the whole experience. And and going back real quick, I know we're getting off topic here, but no, Danny DeVito, I I can't picture it being the same movie because he brings so much of his own... um, personality to his roles that I think you end up watching Danny DeVito and not the character he plays. It's almost like William Shatner or an Adam West. They're so, their personalities are so large that when you watch them in a film, you don't really watch the character. You watch William Shatner in a movie. You watch Adam West in a movie. You watch Danny DeVito in a movie. It's very hard to separate their off-screen presence to their acting role. Not to say they're bad actors or anything, like they're good for what they do, but it's hard to disassociate themselves in a role sometimes. And I don't think Danny DeVito, at the time, you, you would have watched it and not kept thinking Taxi, because that was what he was well known for at the time. Actually, if, if I could bring up uh, uh, one thing there, because this, this film does have a lot of great heroes, a lot of great villains. There's a hero in this, in this movie that is so often overlooked and that's the monkey that follows Sala. 
like non CGI monkey. My ad, it's like, a real, real flesh and blood monkey. No CGI, no puppetry. Just just a a, a great animal actor. And like I I, I love because because he, he adds a little bit of you know physical comedy without going you know too much. He, he's he creates a feeling of the exotic. But that scene, there's that scene where they're where Indy and Sala and everybody are they're going to share a bowl. Was it like fig, figs or dates? Dates, or dates, bad and, dates. And they ha- the dates have been have been poisoned. Right. And, you know, uh, and they're uh, about to eat one, and that's when they notice. Oh, that's when Sala. Oh, the monkey had one, and he's dead. And like the I love the, the monkey is a hero. Yeah. In a, martyrdom way that monkey saved Indiana Jones and his allies well like, you gotta remember too that monkey was a Nazi so don't give him too much athlete. well okay yeah true but but I can't help but feel bad every time I see that the monkey's dead but at no. least I'm that, that he saved the heroes it all, hey, it all I feel pity for the monkey He's a double crosser. He ratted out Marion in the bi- basket chase, and you know, like I said, you can't forget that he's throwing a swastika stick out there. You know, I, b- I bet you Indiana Jones Five is going to be called Indiana Jones and the Revenge of the Nazi Monkey. You know, I'd go see that in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, uh, find King Solomon's mines and release an army of albino Nazi apes, and the ultra humanite can show up. Hey, easy now, easy. You don't know who might be listening to that right now somewhere <laughs> out there in this country. We have David Kep scribbling down frantically what you just said, and it rewind <laughs> because that is the plot for Indy Five. But uh, no, like it's got so many moments of it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm obviously you call the guy who does the Indiana Jones website and a podcast, so I'm not going to give you too many unbiased answers here about why I think it's so great. But again, that's just another small moment. How about the moments where we see Tote pull out his coat hanger? And it's a chain, and you're like, what is that, nunchucks or something like that? Yeah, you think it's going to be some brutal implement of torture. Yeah, and it, it turns out to be a coat hanger, you know? Or when you first meet Marion in the beginning of the movie, she's having a drinking contest with this huge Australian climber guy. You don't know what the hell's going on, and she drinks him under the table, you know? There's these little small moments that are in the film that you just go, that's cool, that's well, cool. And, and, and the scene where she drinks uh, the guy under the table at the, uh, at the bar... Not only is that a funny scene and it works by itself, but it also pays off later when she's with Bullock and they're drinking and she's trying to get him drunk so she can attempt an escape. Right, right, absolutely. You know, that's funny you said that. We were doing a flashback to um, the making of Raiders since this is the 30th anniversary of Raiders Lost Ark. And Larry Kasdan said when he originally wrote that scene, there was more to that and he wanted to actually address the fact that Marion was getting drunk. And that she was starting to feel uh, a little sweet towards Belloc and stuff like that. But the way the film's cut and the way they change the dialogue during the filming of it, it comes across as, no, no, she's just pretending. And I always thought she was pretending. I never thought for a moment she was under the influence because of that scene in the beginning of the movie. She just drank, what, 15, 20 shots of liquor? And, <laughs> and she's only oh, pretending to be drunk. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. She's got a hollow leg or something going on there. Or maybe <laughs> the, the, the headpiece of the staff of Ra just made her liver super strong and she doesn't get drunk but yeah again when they uh they meet tote after that scene there when she was just done drinking and she was trying to escape i i always thought she was just playing along man i think the title of of this film raiders of the lost ark it's um perhaps not the it's it's a very strange title but i think of the part lost ark and they find the ark of the covenant only an hour only halfway into this picture yeah and a lot of the later half of the movie is them chasing the uh the Nazis and trying to transport the Ark and trying to get to it. Well, when they first showed the initial trailer for Raiders of the Lost Ark, they showed it once and one time only uh, at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in January of 1981. And Michael Eisner, and I can't remember the other fellow's name at the moment, they were the folks there at Paramount at the time, and they saw the film. No, this is before Katzenberg was around. Uh. I think he was actually assistant to Eisner back then. But this is 1981, and they said can we show something for an audience, like a test screening? So they threw a trailer together, and they had some scenes of the desert, and they had that title, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they did a little questionnaire survey for folks that saw it. And they, people were saying the same thing you just said. They go, what's a raider? You know, what's a lost ark? What, what, what is that? Other than the Oakland Raiders at the time, when they were still in right. Oakland, no one knew what the hell a raider was. You know, that's not a term you use commonly. And uh, forget the lost ark. Everyone thought Noah's Ark. And... Yeah, they, they they were a little worried about the marketing of that sucker because it, it was not your average title. It wasn't something that rolled off the tongue back then, you know. Well, actually, speaking of titles, I mean, this is one like like in, in, it's just the Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
uh, it, it wouldn't be until the, it's very much like like the the Rambo movies, where you know the first Rambo movie is simply First Blood. It's right. not until after that that every movie gets the name attached, and it's and it's the same with this Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then all the remaining movies are Indiana Jones and the something. Right, which I don't think uh, is necessarily bad, but I I like that I like that it doesn't start as like a big franchise starting brand. I like that it starts oh, no. as its own movie. No, and at the time, Frank Marshall, I remember reading back in the day before the internet, we had Starlog Magazine, which was like oh, a I love magazine. And there was other ones called Fantastic Films. And somewhere in this house, there's a crate of magazines, and I keep telling people I'm going to dig them up someday, do my own Raiders in the house. But Frank Marshall was talking about future films of Indiana Jones, and at the time, he even called them Raiders. Maybe it was in the Rolling Stone article, but he even said, yeah, it could be called Raiders of the Lost Mickey Mantle card, or Raiders of the Lost whatever, or Raiders of this. So the thinking was at the time, at least when this interview was done in 81, they would be called Raiders of whatever, and that was the brand name of the film series. And I think, I got to go back in my notes, but when they finally did switch it over to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Someone said the fact that when you see that in the Temple of Doom, that Kate Capshaw stands in front of the title. It's one of the few times you'll ever see a title of a movie that's obscured, that she stands in front of the word Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom so you can't make out the name. Somewhere I read that that was a little bit of a, a jab back at the marketing folks because they wanted to keep Raiders. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but they said you know the fact that they covered up the Indiana Jones name a bit in the, the second picture... Uh, was alluding to the fact that they liked the Raiders' name better, but I don't know if that's true or not. You never know what you read in magazines. Well, I think we've uh, you know had so much fun talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. We haven't we talked about characters and scenes in the movie, but uh, why don't we wrap things up with the ten minutes we have left? Try and think of your favorite scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's so difficult to choose. There's so many classic scenes or uh, sequences in the film. You know, for me, it's pretty tough to beat that opening. Uh, five-minute sequence with uh, Indiana Jones getting the uh, the idol, getting the gold statue, and being chased by that boulder. It's so iconic, even though the part with the boulder chasing him was something, I guess, from a uh, Scrooge McDuck comic book, I think, I read somewhere. Yep. I know it has excitement, it has danger, and it's at a point where, at that point in the movie, like we discussed earlier, you're not sure who Indiana Jones is. But it gets you interested. It's like, well, this guy certainly has some skills. He knows if there's shafts of light in a dark area, there might be, uh, or, you know, hidden panels to push on. He knows all these traps that his, uh, the guy that was previously there didn't. You know, Forrestal, yeah. yeah. So I think that's my favorite sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Thrasher? Uh, I guess it's... It's hard for me to, to, to pick a favorite because there is just so much in, in the movie. I've already I've already talked about about the fig scene, which is a scene that with, with the monkey that, that always stands out to me. If, if I absolutely have to pick a favorite, I think I would pick the whole the whole like uh, fighting you know f- fighting through the, the streets in, in Egypt when, when you know he's or actually you know what the, so so much of this movie like. This movie exists in like one big awesome clump in my mind. Is the fight scene where he's running through the streets in Egypt the same as as with the the Nazi flying wing? No, that's two different parts of the movie. That's oh, wow. in, in Cairo. If the fight scene you're talking about with the baskets and everything running around through the scene. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's Marion gets kidnapped at that point, and he's trying to find her. The Nazis are running. Actually, not the Nazis. The Cairo henchmen are running around. She's in the basket. Then he thinks she's dead when the truck explodes, and then we go on to the search for the Ark. They find the Ark. He finds Marion still alive. And then it's only after that they throw Marion in the snake pit with Indy. They seal it up. They think he's dead. They break out. Then the airplane fight sequence begins. Okay, well, I guess... Well, I guess I guess that I have to, I have to pick both. They, they both leave a real... As far as, like, you know, action-packed sequences go, they both leave... A, a great big impression on me. I mean, so much is going on, so much is at stake, and yet you know it's—they're not scenes that are hard to follow. You you can you know exactly where everything is and what it's doing and what its important importance is in each of those sequences. That and of course, you know, every, everybody loves the scene where the guy comes out with the blades and does all the fancy sword yeah, work and even yeah. just shoots him. That's that's a classic moment. Well, in the film, it's really smart how when the truck blows up, you think Marion's in there, 
because right. you don't see her on screen for quite a while. I think it might be like 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, nowadays, I don't think they would do that. I think they might, I don't know, You might. she might poke her head up and say a, a smart-ass joke. Yeah, exactly. No, we can't have one of the characters think that they're, you know, can't have the audience think the main character's dead already, you know. But, uh, like I said, I remember, Mike, I said the favorite scene we were talking about, and it always gets me when I'm watching the movie, is when the Nazis show up, he's on the boat, which is called the Bantu Wind, and they take the Ark with them. They're on the sub, and they leave. And then the captain, Captain Katanga, he asked his first mate, you know, have you found Dr. Jones? Do you know where he is? He goes, no, Captain, I've looked everywhere. There's no trace of him. And then he goes, well, he can't, he has to be here somewhere and look again. And then he gets a smile, the first mate does, and he points, he goes, I found him. He goes, where? And he whips his finger out towards the ocean, towards the submarine. And now in the movie theater, at the time, the John Williams score just like erupts from the speakers, and you hear it, and there's Harrison Ford, soaking wet, he had just gone through being dragged under a truck and all this stuff. The guy's broken, battered, and beaten up, but he's not given up. I mean, it's tenacity times a thousand. And here he is pulling himself up onto a submarine, and I'm thinking, how the hell, what's he going to do when he gets there? But don't worry about that. We don't care. And then they cut back to the boat, and there's all the crew members on the boat, all with their arms up in the air doing the chair. Again, the second invention of the wave, I guess. And the, all I remember is sitting in the back of that theater, and the theater was huge back then, like maybe 600 people. It's a big theater. And everybody was clapping and laughing like, Jesus, this nothing's going to stop this guy, you know? And there's Indy, and he jumps onto the boat, and then it submerges. But that's got to be my favorite scene in the movie because it just exemplifies the character of Indiana Jones. Like, nothing is going to stop him from getting his goal, his quest. I mean, this guy is like the Energizer Bunny with a bullwhip and a fedora. He Once he gets going, he's not stopping. Of course, once he gets on the sub, then you're thinking, now what does he do if it goes under the water? <laughs> but they, they cut that scene out of the movie. He straps himself to the periscope with his whip, and that's <laughs> never seen, but that's in the uh, the book and the comic book version of it, how he survived that one. Mitch, do you know if the, uh, if the novelization of Raiders of the Lost Ark is that something yeah. where there's a lot of extra scenes in that that's not in the film, like with the Star yeah. Wars novel? Yeah, in fact, it's actually written by an uh, author named Campbell Black, and it came out in April of 1981, before the film, which came out in June. So it came out a couple months beforehand. And the character of Indiana Jones, I mean, the sequences are pretty much the same in the movie, but we do find out more. We see Belloc meeting Hitler and getting the assignment. We oh, find wow. out... Marion's a little, well, it's not a long, it's like two pages. He's waiting outside Hitler's office uh, to be called in there. And he, uh, Belloc meets Dietrich, and they talk a bit. But there's some things there, like uh, Marion is not that nice to Indy when they meet each other. Because if you recall, she says she was just a child when Indy first had a liaison with her. And uh, she didn't know what she was doing, and he throws back, you knew what you were doing. So you have to think about, Marion's got to be late 20s in that movie, maybe. Yeah, and ten years earlier she'd be sixteen. Hmm. Hopefully, you know whatever the law is back then. And then he's in his twenties or so. He's a bit older than her, so we're, it's kind of I don't know something's going on there. So there's some shenanigans there. And then the novelization, uh, she talks to Indy about how she had to do certain things to survive being up in the the bar there in Nepal after her dad mm. dies. And I do remember some line in there she was saying to Indy like this isn't like we were back at the country club in Schenectady, New York, or something, drinking hot toddies. You know, I had to do what I had to do. So it's implied that she's had a bit of a rough time hmm. um, as a woman stuck amongst a bunch of mountain climbers and Sherpas out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, there was that sequence in the book that was there, and then pretty much it follows the rest of it. And there is more about the characterization of Indiana Jones. If I recall the book, he seems to get a thrill, or almost like... A, tingling down his back when he picks up an ancient object like if he finds an old coin or an old cup from ancient Rome that there's a, a thrill that happens to him when he picks up an object and realizes it's been hidden for thousands of years and he's just recovered it so they talk a little bit more about uh, Indiana Jones's compulsion to uh, be an archaeologist and be a treasure hunter and a fortune uh, hunter because again you got to remember he's described as a grave digger and uh, he's not described as a scholarly archaeologist type of guy. He's a little shady, you know. So there is a lot of that in the Campbell Black book if you uh, if you find it. It's still out there. You can pick it up at the Amazon or Barnes & Noble or somewhere. 
I just can never watch that opening part of Raiders of the Lost Ark where the boulder is chasing him without yeah. thinking of the uh, Super Nintendo game, Indiana Jones' Greatest Adventures. Okay, and that's it, the hardest game in the world. Yeah, so. it's an infuriating uh-huh. side-scrolling game, but the, in, uh, yeah. in level two, the boulder is chasing you. The screen is scrolling. You have like a centimeter in front of your character, and there's spikes, and you have to literally memorize where the spikes are, where the pit's jumping over. It takes, and you have like no continues. I don't know, it takes like over half an hour <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out how to get past that part of that game. It's a very frustrating, difficult... Well, I give you credit for actually getting that far. I, I gave up in frustration. <laughs> you know, it's one yeah, of those... I when I was a, when I, was a, I couldn't even get that far with those. But when I was a kid, I, I remember that game and like almost beat it. But, I don't know, like not anymore. I'm. Well, it's a lot better than the Atari 2600 Raiders of the Lost Ark cartridge that I got for Christmas as a oh. present. And uh, <laughs> you saw this 8-bit little stick figure. And I remember my dad being in the room and... Uh, I finally solved it. Well, I thought I solved it because you, you took a square block and you went into a room and there was another rectangular block that was supposed to be the arc <laughs> and like a bunch of little pixels shot out and went to the top of the screen and the screen started to flash and you heard that Muzak version of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark theme. I go, is it over? And my dad, <laughs> I remember my dad looking up like, did you beat it? I go, I don't know. We just, we just stared <laughs> at the screen and... Is it over? I guess it is. There was no credits that came up. You just start... <laughs> and the thing flashed, and I was like, okay, that was a waste of 40 hours of my life that I wish I'll have back someday. Uh, maybe yeah. today, but... Well, yeah, the, the guy who designed that game, Howard Scott Warshaw, um, yeah. also designed the E.T. game. Yeah. Uh, and um, apparently Steven Spielberg was a fan of that Raiders of the Lost Ark Atari game and thought yeah, we had him on the it was week. a good game. Yeah, we had them on the IndieCast, and, and you got to give those guys credit for the amount of ingenuity and inventiveness and imagination they put into something that had less memory than your average email. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, I mean, they were working with eight, what, what eight bit color, and well, I don't know how big the memory was, but it was like insignificant nowadays. And it's amazing the things that they pulled off in those games back then. I mean, they graphically didn't look as amazing as a PS2 or an X or a PS3 or Xbox, but. You know, you, you you had to take your time and you had to look for the right square and get the right pixel and, you know, whatever it was. My son played the uh, game Dra- uh, Adventure, which was an old Atari game. And oh, he's yeah. like, what's this duck chasing me? I go, duck? That's a dragon, man. <laughs> he's like, what? I go, take that spear and kill. He goes, what spear? I go, that arrow thing. He goes, are you kidding me? I'm like, no. <laughs> This is adventure, man. Thirty years ago, this is the top of the the line with video games. But yeah, Indiana Jones. Did you ever play any of the other Indiana Jones games since then? Like the uh, I played the, the the if I remember correctly, it was the Nintendo uh, Temple of Doom game. Huh. Okay, where as I recall, you couldn't jump, but you could. There were like pegs spaced around the levels. If you could whip the peg, then you could perform kind of a jump swing maneuver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that type of thing. There was one uh, of the I, arcades. And I, and I don't know if this might be my memory being faulty, but I remember there, like, like you had a gun, but you had like almost no ammo, and your whip didn't actually hurt anybody. Yeah. So like, I was like always, I don't think I ever got past the first stage. I certainly huh. didn't get as far as the minecart level. Well, you got to remember back then, who knows what the rules were for violence. I mean, we're coming out of the 70s where Batman and Robin cartoons where they couldn't hit, uh, Batman couldn't hit a bad guy. it would be like, well, what? And the Joker would slip on a banana peel, and that's how they would catch him. So I don't know what the rules were for video games back then, especially for a film as violent as Temple of Doom. Maybe uh, you made rocks fall on the bad guys, and you couldn't actually shoot somebody. I'll have to go back and, and see what they were like. I, I recall you, you could shoot them. It just, it's just like the ammo was so restrictive. It, it like... That that was the first. You know what? Now that I think about it, that was the first game I played. Where my response to the game is, "Why do I even bother?" <laughs> I didn't feel. I I, I I don't often feel that way about games. The most recent time I felt it was with Bayonetta. I think with um, the Indiana Jones games, I, I I certainly think some of the better ones are the uh, ones uh, LucasArts did. The um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Yeah, were these two graphic adventure games that had all these. Uh, puzzles, and they were designed and uh, written by Hal Barwood. Yep, yep. And, uh, and, and those are really good, and uh, at least on the PC, you can get, you know, download them for through Steam for like $3 a piece or something. 
Actually, the Fate of Atlantis was available on that most recent uh, Indiana Jones Wii game that came out. The Staff of Kings? The Staff of Kings, yeah. Yeah. One of the extras on there was you can unlock that. Oh, wow. And that Super Indiana Jones game you mentioned, I think it's still available on the Wii Virtual Arcade, is it called? Yeah, Virtual Console. uh, Virtual Console, yeah. Yeah, it is on there. Um, Yeah, I I haven't played Indiana Jones and Staff of Kings. I I played a little bit of the... um, Indiana Jones and oh, it's sitting right there in my living room. Uh, Emperor's Tomb, I think it's on PlayStation Two or Xbox. And uh, yeah, the Emperor's Tomb. Yeah, yeah, and, and that that one's okay. Uh, but so even though they've made a lot of Indiana Jones video games, I don't think they've really quite nailed it apart from the. Um, well, the, the Lego stars. one has to be the the most fun. The Lego Indiana oh, Jones. Game. No, I forgot about those that. Lego games are. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the Batman one's fantastic, but the Indiana Jones one, they came out with two of them, and the second uh-huh. version, they added the Crystal Skull. My kids love those, and I did too. I was like, could you keep playing? Because I want to see the animation scenes. <laughs> I want to see, like, the little reenactments of the film they do, because they have to take the violent angle out of it, uh, obviously, when it's a Lego game for kids. So it's fun to see how he beats up Tote and Belloc, and their heads melt away when you're trying to be a rated G video game, you know? It can be pretty creative about those type of things. It makes me wonder if they're going to do a Lego Indiana Jones 3 based on any of the young indie stuff, because there's certainly a lot of material there they could use. Uh, they had a Sega Genesis game uh, based on the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I actually have it like five feet in front of me here. I haven't played it in like 15 or 20 years. But yeah, that was a hard one too. You had to go and be young Indian and, and go out there and do a lot of his adventures that took place on that television series as well. And, uh, no, they haven't done the Young Indie Chronicles as a Lego game. There is some Young Indie stuff from The Last Crusade when River Phoenix played him that's available in the uh, the Lego games there, like when he's on the circus train and he meets the lion and he gets his whip and all that jazz. So I, I do remember seeing that stuff, if I'm not mistaken. After a while, it all blurs here. I've got so much Indiana Jones memorabilia, and I've watched them so many times. I, our dog is named Indiana. After a while, I begin to <laughs> lose touch with reality. I was just telling my son, Short Round, I mean, Owen, the other day, that uh, you know, when he was outside looking for Shankar stones, I mean, Easter eggs, that it was getting to be a little too much. So, um... <laughs> I drink my, my coffee out of a holy grail. <laughs> oh, nice. Is there something wrong with this cup? So, uh, so Mitch, I think this goes without saying. Uh, what do you recommend people watch uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. If you were going to ask me which order they watch them in, because uh, technically the Temple of Doom is a prequel. Yeah. It takes place in 35. No, no, no. Go with the way they came out. Go with Raiders and then follow suit with the films just as they came out the way they did, because you don't have to go into that whole prequel type of thing. It's not Star Wars. You don't need to know who's his father before you watch the first adventure or anything like that. So definitely recommended Raiders of the Lost Ark highly. It's probably my favorite film next to Star Wars, A New Hope of all time. Asher, would you recommend uh, this film? Absolutely. I mean, it is it is, it is just all around uh, a great film. And, and you know, regardless of, of the, the violence in it, it's violence with real consequences. I would not have a problem showing showing this to kids. I mean, not like little kids, like six or older, maybe. <laughs> but there's there's just so much to recommend in these films. I, I I I could not recommend it more. And for me, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, should have been called Raiders of the Lost Actor. Harrison Ford looks like a slob. He doesn't know what he's doing with the whip. I, no, I, I like I like Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I think it's a, a wonderful film. I think it holds up pretty well. If you're a, a younger listener and find it a bit slow, you know, stick with it. There's definitely more action in the second half of uh, this movie than the first. Mitch, uh, you know, from the IndieCast, uh, thanks very much for coming on the sequel cast. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to Indie with you guys. I'm, I'm sorry that an hour's gone by so quickly. I'm like, what? We just started. We didn't even get to the, uh, <laughs> the, the Well of the Souls yet or find R2-D2 and C-3PO hidden in there. We didn't talk about that stuff. We, we may have to do a bonus episode. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just talk to you about all the mistakes in the film and all the, the bloopers, <laughs> and you can go back and rewatch the film and watch the bug fly in Belloc's mouth. <laughs> but again, guys, it's it's been fantastic talking to you about Raiders. Like I said, it's the 30th anniversary of it, and... Uh, I think it holds up terrifically, and I recommend it to anybody out there who's even heard of it but not seen it. Get out there right now and, and go watch it. You're doing yourself a disservice if you haven't seen this movie by now. Sure, and uh, Mitch, you said you should be able to do it the next few weeks, too? 
Oh, absolutely. Okay, On Wednesday nights, 9 o'clock, I told my wife, I said, hey, do not bother me. I'm going downstairs into the uh, Well of the Souls, I mean the basement, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk some Indiana Jones for a while. Well, uh, thanks very much. You know, I appreciate all you do with the uh, IndieCast and on uh, the Raider.net, all that stuff. I mean, it, it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, if you like Indiana Jones, if you uh, have Netflix in the United States, uh, you can watch almost all the episodes of Young Indiana Jones Chronicles through Netflix Watch Instantly. Yeah, I noticed the other night that the one with Harrison Ford is not available. I think that has to be some kind of a mistake because they show some they show like a documentary on as being disc only instead of Mystery of the Blues. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, that's a very weird omission. Unless there's some sort of weird like SAG regulation. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's the best one. That's the first one I went looking for as soon as I saw that it was on instant streaming. I'm like, okay, let me see if Mystery of the Blues is on. I tried watching it on my iPhone. And I couldn't find it, so hopefully yeah. it's buried in there somewhere. Yeah, maybe they'll slap it on later. Uh, all right, thanks, guys. I gotta go. You know, eat some dinner. I know it's uh, late for you, Thrasher and Mitch, on the East Coast. No problem, man. This was a great episode. Oh sure. Yeah, uh, thanks. Can't much. wait till next week when you talk about chilled monkey brains and all that fun stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. No, me neither. I got chilled monkey brains from the Indian place around the street the other day. So really? No. <laughs> I had goat. Cur- I had goat curry. Ooh. I don't know. Maybe the monkey brains aren't such a bad idea. Maybe not. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Next time. Bye, guys. The sequel cast airs Wednesdays, 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific time on Cascadia.fm online internet streaming radio. You can also download episodes of the sequel cast from www.sequelcast.com. Okay. How cool was the beginning of this movie? You have a guy. He's already in this this temple with all these traps. Uh, the guide gets killed. And then you have you have a giant boulder chase the protagonist. You're like, what, five minutes into the movie? You don't know anything else about this guy except that he's kind of a treasure hunter and he's in some Temple of Doom. I really don't remember how old I was when I saw this movie, but I couldn't have been in the theater. We all agree Karen Allen's hot, right? So, of course, every girl wants Indy and every guy's, like, impressed by him. Yet, really, he's just he's a, he, a nerd... With, with glasses, is he famous? Do these these adventures that he have actually get publicized? Or is it just his good Harrison Ford looks that are driving these women crazy and everybody wanting to kind of be in his class? Really, archaeology, unless you're really into, like, history and stuff, is not like this. I mean, it's obvious that this guy is, like, important because of how many treasures he brings to museums and stuff, but... Is he a great, like, secret agent? What really, what qualifies Indiana Jones to be hired by the government other than uh, he's a professor who knows enough about antiquities and he has a whip? I really enjoy seeing Nazis get hurt. Scratch that. I enjoy watching Nazis die. Evil Nazi monkey! I happen to like this last scene. Uh, It's a good example of God's wrath towards Nazis, which I completely approve. The Third Reich was an industrial powerhouse, but as the war continued, there were less supplies to make guns, to make tanks, to make all that. But at the same time, they were spending a lot of money and their own resources to go out and do the strangest experiments. Uh, supposedly there were UFO experiments. Supposedly there were rockets being fired. We have things like Oppenheimer and stuff coming out of these fields after paper clip. Um, but again, I digress. You also had them doing crazy mystical uh, assertions, like measuring the heads of Buddhist monks. What everybody needs to do is they need to go online onto YouTube and find these, like, recast uh, trailers where they take old 1920s, 1930s, 1940s serials and combine them into trailers for movies that we all know and love. They did one for Ghostbusters with Bob Hope. Uh, They've done one for Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant, which is spectacular. And Jersey Jason.